Good morning. The Bible reading today is Psalm 73. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. For I envied the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. They have no struggles. Their bodies are healthy and strong. They are free from common human burdens. They are not plagued by human ills. Therefore, pride is their necklace. They clothe themselves with violence. From their callous heart comes inequity. Their evil imaginations have no limits. They scoff and speak with malice. With arrogance, they threaten oppression. Their mouths lay claim to heaven, but their tongues take possession of the earth. Therefore, their people turn to them and drink up waters in abundance. They say, how could God know? Does the Most High know everything? This is what the wicked are like, always free of care. They go on amassing wealth. Surely in vain I have kept my heart pure and have washed my hands in innocence. All day long I have afflicted and every morning brings new punishments. But if I had spoken out like that, I would have betrayed your children. When I tried to understand all this, it troubled me deeply. Till I entered the sanctuary of God, Then I understood their final destiny. Surely you place them on slippery grounds, you cast them down to ruin. How suddenly are they destroyed, completely swept away by terrors. They are like dreams when one awakes. When you arise, Lord, you will despise them as fantasies. When my heart was grieved and my spirit embittered, I was scentless and ignorant. I was a brute beast before you, yet I'm always with you. You hold me by my right hand. You guide me with your counsel, and afterwards you will take me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And earth has nothing I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail, but God is strength of my heart and my portions forever. Those who are far from you will perish. You destroy all who are unfaithful to you. But as for me, it is good to be near God. I have made the sovereign Lord my refuge. I will tell of all your deeds. This is the word of the Lord. Indeed, thanks be to God. My wife and I are musicians. We actually met in a recording studio. My wife is um, a very sophisticated uh, opera singer. She's maybe looking at home with the kids. Hello. Uh, I'm a much more rough trade uh, jazz pianist. So we sort of meet in the middle in um, musicals. We love a good musical. And uh, one of the musicals we watched recently, I'm going to not sing for you. I'm going to read for you the opening ballad. Any musical lovers in the room online? Yeah, we... No Googling at home, Uh, see if you know where this 1979 musical is from. You are young, life has been kind to you, you will learn. There's a hole in the world like a great black pit, and the vermin of the world inhabit it. And its morals aren't worth what a pig can spit, and it goes by the name of London. At the top of the hole sit a privileged few, making mock of the vermin in the lower zoo. 
turning beauty to filth and greed. I too have sailed the world and seen its wonders, for the cruelty of man is as wondrous as Peru, but there's no place like London. I won't make you guess, this is the uh, cynical opening ballad from the 1979 musical Sweeney Todd, which was uh, made into a movie uh, a little while ago starring Johnny Depp. Uh, it won a Tony Award at the time. It's a great musical, though I do not recommend it if you're uh, squeamish <laughs> at all. Uh, it's a brutal movie. Uh, it's a bit of a silly movie, too, a silly musical. Um, certainly not a safe one to go on a first date on. It's the, the gory tale of a mad barber, a mad barber who takes his revenge on the, the rich and the powerful of London, uh, luring them into his barber's chair for a close shave and then slitting their necks as they relax in his specially designed barber's chair with a mechanical lever where he can send the bodies downstairs to Mrs. Lovett, who bakes them into pies. He has it in for the rich and the powerful of London. My relationship with my barber has been strained ever since. Um, perhaps flowing beards are all the go now, as the poet says. Anyway, it's an interesting story because while he is a homicidal maniac, we relate to him, or at least we feel sorry for him. It's quite clever the way the story sets us up because, you see, Sweeney Todd doesn't start off life as Sweeney Todd. He starts off life as Benjamin Barker, a devoted family man, a, a good husband to his wife Lucy, and his small, a good father to his small daughter Joanna. A family man, an honest businessman, who works hard to put food on the table, who doesn't covet wealth or riches, who doesn't uh, steal. He's, he's honest, an honest, hard-working family man providing for his family. So what happens? What happens to turn this family barber into a mad butcher? Well, the story explains... Sweeney Todd's misfortune begins when his wife, Lucy, catches the eye of a corrupt, powerful judge, Judge Turpin. We're not meant to like Judge Turpin, as you can tell from his name. He conspires to invent charges against uh, Sweeney Todd. He conspires to charge him with false crimes, convicts him unfairly, and sends him away, transports him away uh, as, as a convicted man, while... He, the, the, the judge kidnaps, essentially, his family, his wife and his small, small daughter, and forces them to live with him. At the end of uh, his, tr his kind of time, uh, his conviction, his, his sentence, Sweeney Todd comes back and finds that his wife is dead and his small girl has grown up, but is living essentially as a prisoner in the judge's house. And this put Sweeney Todd over the edge. Sweeney Todd vows revenge not just on Judge Turpin, but in fact on the entire system, the elite of London, who, who allowed for this honest man's life to be taken away from him in order to satisfy a corrupt man's lust. You are young. Life has been kind to you. You will learn. Now, it's a fitting way into our psalm today. Why? Well, not because there's butchery in the psalm, but because the world that creates Sweeney Todd 
is the same world that creates this psalm. It's the same world of corruption, where powerful people exploit their power and play with the poor for sport. It's the same world that this psalmist is responding to. And so let's get into it. Great to have your Bibles out. If you're reading along, you'll notice Psalm 73 comes after Psalm 72. You might be thinking they pay you for that at Ridley to, to make those kind of observations. Yes, they do. Psalm 73 comes after Psalm 72, and if you look in your Bibles, it actually is noted as the start of Book 3. The Psalter, the Book of Psalms, is divided up into five books, and they have a story. You're meant to read through from start to finish and get a sense of this overarching story. You'd see at the end of Psalm 72, the end of Book 2, this concludes the prayers of David, son of Jesse. Right? Psalm 72 leaves us at the high point of the drama of, of the Israel monarchy. Solomon, the, the son of the great king David, great, great king of Israel, David. Solomon is, is presiding over a period of prosperity, wisdom, godliness. It's the golden age of Israel. And as the credits roll on that second book, we're left wondering, what's going to happen next? Surely nothing could go wrong. Of course, book three opens, and this is the gritty reboot of the series where things start to hit a minor key. And that's what Psalm 73 begins. This minor key, this complication to the story, which will then be resolved over the next few books. Uh, When we get into the detail here, I'm going to be using these three headings. Orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. So let's have a look at some of the detail here in this Psalm 73. Part one, orientation. The psalm begins with this beautifully positive statement. Surely God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. Now this is pure Old Testament uh, prosperity theology. Uh, There's two paths, the righteous path and the not-so-righteous path. The, the, The good path and the bad path, the path with God and the path without God. One of these paths leads to blessing, to glory, to goodness, The other path leads to destruction, foolishness, death. So you have the path of life and the path of death, the path with God, the path without God. Surely God is good to Israel. Be a good boy or a good girl, stick to the right path, and good things will happen to you. Now this is wonderfully clear, straightforward, orthodox theology. The problem is, it doesn't work. At least for a moment, that's how it seems to the psalmist. It doesn't work. And that brings us to part two, the disorientation. But as for me, my feet had almost slipped. I had nearly lost my foothold. You might notice, by the way, um, the the Hebrew poets tend to say things twice. (laughs) They tend to repeat themselves. Um, It's not because they... Um, it's not an accident, it's, it's, it's deliberate. Hebrew poetry doesn't rhyme, but it does have what you might call thought rhymes, idea rhymes. It, it puts an idea out there, my feet had almost slipped, and then it escalates that idea, explores that idea a little bit further in the second line. I'd nearly lost my foothold. And that, that word there is really interesting because foothold sounds in Hebrew a lot like the word for blessing. Remember the blessing path and the wicked path. So here she is on the blessing path, when suddenly she feels like her feet are almost slipping away onto the other path. Why? 
because you are young. Life has been kind to you. You will learn. It's almost like that's what the psalmist in Psalm 73 is singing to the psalmist of 72. You are young. You will learn. Right? Life isn't the way it should be. Life doesn't turn out the way you think it might. Now, what causes this poet, this godly person, to almost lose her faith? By the way, I'm calling her a she. This is a convention. We don't really know who wrote this particular psalm, uh, but the convention is to swap between male and female in each of the psalms, so I'm just using that convention today, but we don't really know who it is. It's identified as a psalm of Asaph, but that's, that's a whole family of psalms and a whole family that comes from, so we don't quite know. Anyway, what's causing this godly person to doubt her faith? Well, it's looking around at the world. Not the world in theory, the world of idealism, but the world of reality. Here's what she notices about the wicked. Firstly, they have prosperity, verse 3. And this isn't just that they're, they're rich, although that's true. This word prosperity is the word shalom. If you know this word shalom, it, it's, it's God's blessing, it's wholeness, it's fullness, it's the point of life, and it's meant to be for the righteous. And yet they have shalom. What's going on there? They're healthy. They don't have those common complaints that every human being has. Right? They have... Their bodies aren't subject to the same problems that we have as we break down and die. Now, I think she's exaggerating there. I think one or two of them may have had a sniffle from time to time. But the point is, life seems to be going well for them. And that would be perfectly fine, except the second thing she notices is that they're not good people. They're not on the righteous path. They're on the wicked path. Good things keep happening to bad people. Um, the, the, the poet has some really colourful language to describe uh, these people. Uh, these metaphors are about their eyes, about their clothes, about their mouths. Have a look at a few of them. Uh, verse 7 has this wonderful, um, <laughs> colourful three-word expression. Um, their eyes come out from fatness. <laughs> That's a strange word. It's not body shaming them, right? It's saying, basically, in the, it's, uh, this image is of this, like, grotesquely fat face and these eyes sort of popping out. Why? Well, in that world of famine and constant fear of not having enough to eat, to be fat is a symbol of oppression because the only way you get fat in that world is by stealing the food of the poor. And yet their eyes are still grasping for more. They're insatiable in their desire for what other people have roaming the world. That, that's just their eyes, their mouths. Gosh, they can talk. Their ungodliness knows no limits from the highest heavens down to earth. They even mock God. And we know from Proverbs that to oppress the, uh, the poor is the same thing as to mock God. They make threats of oppression, and people know that they mean it. And yet, verse 10, they, people lap it up. Right, these are the influential people in society. These are the people who everybody listens to. The thought leaders, the influencers. These wicked, greedy people. Even their clothing, even their clothing is suspect. 
In the morning when they get up, they necklace themselves with pride and then they put on their clothes for violence. We're told to dress for the job that you want. Well, they put on clothes for violence. I think we're meant to think of Judge Turpin here. Their eyes, their mouths, their clothes, everything about them is all about oppressing the poor all the time. And they are shameless. This is a pretty dark place that the psalmist takes us to. And it's the kind of dark place that generates a character like Sweeney Todd. A bitterness. Uh, One of the reasons in in the musical that we don't shed a tear for Judge Turpin when he finally meets his end in the barber's chair is because we know what he's like. One of the opening scenes, we we meet Judge Turpin, he's sitting up above on his judge's uh, chair, the bench, casting judgment on this pathetic child, a child, must be only 12 or 13, who is on, 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 on the stand for a capital crime of stealing. And as this boy dissolves in tears, the Judge Turpin is unmoved, sentences him to hang. Afterwards, when Judge Turpin is talking to the prosecutor, he says, well, did he do it? Ah, well, he probably did something. Unmoved by his tears, unmoved by justice, that's the rich, that's the powerful, and nobody cares. Sweeney Todd is not a real story, but the world that produces that story is very real. This week, the largest fine I think ever handed down in Australia was awarded, awarded's not the right word, $1.3 billion dollars. A major bank fined $1.3 billion for failing to report, I think it was 23 million uh, potential money laundering transactions that should have been reported. Now, I don't mean to pick on bankers this morning. If you're a banker, bless you, Jesus loves you. Um, that's not the point. What, reading into this example, what sickened me was that the reason why it was such a harsh penalty was because in amongst those 23 million suspect transactions, there were hundreds of customers and thousands of transactions this bank had processed, which almost certainly were being used for child exploitation in places like the Philippines. And they should have been. There were red flags all over these transactions that they were to exploit a child, and the bank did nothing. It is unimaginable to me to think these thousands of, I mean, every single one of those thousands of transactions is a child and a a moment of misery, of lifelong destruction, all for some rich Australian's pleasure. The world of Sweeney Todd and the world of this psalmist is our world. And nobody cares. The banks do nothing. The government does nothing, I did nothing, and seemingly God does nothing. And for a moment, just for a brief moment, the the poet catches herself in a weird way envying the wicked. I don't think she actually wants to join them in their wickedness, nor do I think that we're meant in this psalm to divide the world up into these really, really, really bad people over here and then these really, really good people in here. It's not that, that the Bible doesn't have that worldview. It doesn't believe in perfect people and, and irredeemably wicked people. But it does have these two paths. 
And it's, and it's, being, it's, a, it's, it's being painted in extremes for us, isn't it? Because the psalmist is looking at her life and thinking, well, why do I bother trying to keep to the path of the, the righteous, the path of wisdom, when the blessings are going to people who are clearly not trying to keep to that path? Why do I bother? Am I choosing the right way? Or should she just give up? They ignore God and are blessed. In fact, they say, how would God know, verse 11? Does the Most High know anything? And so, in answer to the surely God is good to Israel of verse 1, the poet lands at this terrible counter-theology in verse 13. Surely, in vain I have kept my heart pure. Because good good things keep happening to bad people. And what's more, bad things keep happening to her. Verse 14, all day long I have been afflicted. And every morning brings new punishments. Good things happen to bad people and bad things happen to me. So what's the point? I wonder how comfortable you would feel (laughs) talking to God like this. Praying like this in church, even. The great French theologian and reformer Jean Calvin once observed that psalms like this are a vaccine in the arm, really. A vaccine against that horrible spiritual disease of hypocrisy. Because these words of God to us are also words for us to use to God. To encourage us not to keep these thoughts, these quiet doubts, these fears, this sense of resentment. Not to keep it to ourselves, but to actually express it to our God. Now, maybe you're far too godly to have ever experienced this kind of feeling, feeling of being gypped. God hasn't kept his side of the bargain. Or, or, or maybe, maybe you have had doubts from time to time. Well, I think the great spiritual doctor of the soul, John Calvin, and I think the great poet of Psalm 73 would give you permission, not just permission, encouragement, to bring those words and those feelings first to God. Look, he can handle it. He's God. You're not going to break him. And notice that's what the psalmist does. She doesn't speak it out loud. In fact, she says, if I had spoken this out loud at church, (laughs) if that had been my sermon, then I might have led people astray. But instead, what she does do, she doesn't go on a Sweeney Todd-style rampage. She doesn't express it out loud to other people. She goes to God and leans into him. And so that's when we get to the third part of her psalm. Part three, reorientation. What is it that turns her doubt into a deeper faith is perspective. Perspective. She's not wrong, but she needs a new perspective. Verse 16, when I tried to understand this, it troubled me deeply, she writes, until... I entered the sanctuary of God and then I understood their destiny. Where she goes with her outrage and her doubt and her uh, anger is this place, the sanctuary. That's sort of the middle part of the temple. The, uh, the word means holy. It's derived from the word for holy. It's the, it's the, it's the main game of the temple, the, 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 the central place. And to understand why this is such an important turning point, we need to understand what the temple does for the ancient Israelite 
If you remember the story back in, in, in Genesis, God created the world, he created the world good, but, uh, and, and he appointed us as humans as, I guess, middle management <laughs> to rule over the world in his stead. Great responsibility, huge responsibility. We decided instead to disbelieve him, disrespect him, and disobey him. And we introduced into this world a cycle of violence and oppression which wasn't there before. We broke it. At that point, God's presence is no longer able to be experienced in the same way. Holy God, he cannot be in the presence of that kind of oppression and sin. He just... But rather than just give up on us and give up on the world and wipe the slate clean and start again, maybe this time put the dolphins in charge, see how that turns out, he doesn't do that. He commits himself to us. And part of the, the, the project is to re-establish his presence where he and humanity can be together, re-establish that presence in the sanctuary, in the temple. We've got a picture of Solomon's temple there for you. This place on earth where two realities overlap. This one reality of the world as it is, this world of violence and oppression where rich people oppress the poor, and then there's the reality, the deeper, the truer reality where God is, the reality of where this world is ending up, where God's will is done on earth as it is in heaven, where God reigns and that reign is acknowledged. Well, in the temple, we have this overlap between those two worlds, one ephemeral reality, one eternal reality, one reality full of violence, one full of God's peace and justice. One visible reality, one invisible reality. And so the psalmist enters into this sanctuary and remembers these two realities. It's this one point in the world where it's almost like the kingdom to come leaks into the present. And, well, they can do business with God. We don't have a temple anymore, by the way. That temple, it got destroyed twice. But we have, as Christians, Jesus, who provocatively declared that his body is the temple, the place on earth where God's kingdom to come and the current order of death overlap, where we can experience God and his presence. And that's where we go as Christians to meet with God. And it's where we can also get this perspective. Remember that God is not indifferent to our suffering. He suffered and bled in this very world that we're experiencing. And yet his resurrected body points us forward to this reality to come. See, it's not, the poet wasn't wrong in her assessment of the wicked. Yes, their lives are great now. But she realizes, given that perspective, where this is ending up. Where the path of righteousness, which is pain now but glory later. And where the path of wickedness, which is prosperity now but destruction later. She sees where the paths end up and that reminds her that she's made the right choice. Surely, surely you will place them on slippery ground, she writes. You will cast them down to ruin. We had the first surely, the surely God is good to Israel. We had the second surely in the middle, which is the surely in vain, I've kept my hands pure. This is the final surely in the psalm. She felt like her feet were slipping, but actually it's them who are on slippery ground. 
Their path looks good until you see where the road ends. How suddenly they are destroyed, completely swept away. God is not indifferent. Make no mistake, friends. God is not indifferent to the violence and the suffering of this world. There will be justice in the end. If there's no justice, that's because it's not the end. There will be justice in the end. The wealth and the riches and the arrogance of the evildoers are fleeting. I love this, verse 20. It's like a dream when one awakes. It comes to nothing. Like dinner plans in lockdown. Like a good joke in a Zoom call. Like a 2020 round-the-world ticket. I don't know, you could keep on going with these metaphors. It's nothing. It's nothing. There are two paths, there are two worlds, there are two realities. The world as it appears and the world as it really is. The temporary and the eternal. The world of the wicked and the world of the righteous. One is flimsy, one is a solid rock. And one is where God is. And this, if there's anything that we can take away, (laughs) how precious the presence of God is for the psalmist. Yet I am always with you, she writes. You hold me by your right hand. Or later, verse 26, my flesh and my heart may fail, but God is the rock of my heart and my portion forever. I love this image of God holding our hand. My little girl, Chloe, she mostly can't walk. And so when she's on slippery ground, when she's on uneven ground, what does she do? She puts up her hand to hold mine. And that gives her the confidence to face even the most treacherous of playgrounds. And friends, what the psalmist is saying is God is with you. If you're on this path, God is with you. You need only hold up your hand and he will lead you by your right hand. And so that's how the psalmist is able to come full circle. All right, at the start, surely God is Israel, verse 1, but as for me, verse 2. By the time we get down to verse 27, verse 28, as for me, it is good to be near the Lord. This is the most precious thing in her world is to be near to God. More precious than riches, more precious than people talking about her nicely, more precious than a prosperity even, safety or health, is to be near God. To be assured that no matter what happens, God is near to you. He's with you, even in the darkest, darkest part of that path. She was tempted back in verse 15 to talk negatively about God. But here, finally, in verse 28, she is emboldened to talk positively about all God's deeds. And she did. That's why we have this psalm here for us, Psalm 73. Well, what does this leave us with? What do we take away? I I think poetry leaves us with more questions sometimes than answers. And so some of the questions I take away from this poem are these. What path am I on? What path am I on? Am I on the path of short-term prosperity but long-term destruction? Or am I on the path that leads through hardship to glory? How do my decisions make sense in those two? What do they suggest? Along the way, on that path, 
Am I prepared to voice my doubts and my questions to God as courageously as she has? Am I prepared to go to God with my disappointments? Like the psalmist, do I know the joy of God's presence? Can I count God's presence with me as the greatest treasure in this life? When I go to Jesus and are reminded of his great power and his great love and his great compassion, no matter what is going on. And if I do, if I do, then Jesus is the only sanctuary, the only place we can go to experience that, the only right path. Will I keep quiet about that? Or are my friends and my family members and my neighbours precious enough to me that I would speak to them of all his deeds? Let's pray. Almighty God, you have promised to be near to those who call on you in Jesus' name. Thank you for leading us through life's twists and turns. Thank you that you love us and that you are powerful. I pray you'd help all of us here today to have such a sense of your presence with us in Jesus by his Spirit, that you would help us to have perseverance this week for whatever it holds, and keep that hope of final justice and glory in our minds and in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.